the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. We begin our study of the book of Luke with an introduction into when, where, and why Luke was written, and to who that was intended to read. We join Pastor Will first in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, but we'll be studying Luke chapter 1. Acts 1, verse 1 says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. We learn here that Luke, being the same writer of the book of Acts, he mentions that there was a former account. There was something else he wrote prior to Acts, and the Gospel of Luke is that account. And so while Acts records what Jesus continued to do through the church, Luke records what Jesus did through his life on earth. He mentions here all the things that Jesus began to do and teach, and then all the way up to his resurrection, and then the commandments he gave after he rose from the dead, and then the infallible proofs that were there. That is the book of Luke, what he references here. You might be thinking, okay, but don't we have three other books that cover that? I mean, we have Matthew and Mark and John, and I'm actually a little partial to John. So why did Luke have to write a fourth gospel? One thing to point out is that Matthew and Mark were the only Gospels written by the time Luke wrote his. The Gospel of John would not be written for another 30 years. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what's known as the synoptic Gospels. The word synoptic means seeing all together. We get our word synopsis from it. Those Gospels generally cover the same timeline of Jesus' life. They generally start at the same point and they cover the same topics. The book of John actually covers a large part of Jesus' early ministry, which is why it's not grouped with them. You say, okay, so I can see why John had an excuse to write his, but if we had two already, why does Luke just write another one about the same time? Well, one of the things we have to remember is that the Gospels are not merely historical narratives. Each of them are like letters written to teach us something specific about Jesus. So the question we have to ask when we approach Luke is, what did he want to specifically teach us about Jesus? To answer that question, we have to understand a little about who Luke is. Paul, in Colossians chapter 4, verses 12 through 14, he mentions all the members of his team, his ministry team. And he lists Luke there as one of his Gentile members of his team. He says, you know, these are of the circumcision. He lists a few guys, and these are of the Gentiles. And then Luke falls under that heading. So that would make Luke the only Gentile author in the New Testament. Job and Nebuchadnezzar are his Gentile counterparts in the Old Testament. They were parts of the Old Testament. They were not Jewish. He's the only New Testament writer, though, that is a Gentile. Luke was likely from the Roman province of Asia, which is in modern-day Turkey on the western coast. And the reason we say that is because he isn't mentioned in Acts until he joins Paul's missionary team at Troas, one of the cities on the coast there. But there's another thing. All ancient Greek medical writers were from that area. 
They all were. You say, well, what's that matter about? Why are you bringing that up? Because Luke was a physician. He was Paul's personal physician. In that chapter of Colossians 4, verse 14, Paul calls him my beloved physician. Now, what's interesting when you read the book of Luke or Acts, when dealing with diseases or miraculous healings, the terms that he uses to describe those diseases or the healings are of a technical character peculiar to a medical man. So he's not just someone who was there to kind of be a nursemaid for Paul, but this was a trained physician. It's funny because he even uses medical terms for non-medical things. To be a trained physician, that would mean he was either a slave or he was a freed slave because physicians never held rank above that. Most believe that he joined Paul's team to help Paul. Paul had many health issues. He was one of the few that stayed with Paul in prison when so many others forsook him for fear that they'd be arrested too. Paul, when writing to Timothy, says, when you come visit me, bring John Mark with you because the only one who's with me is Luke. You know, he says, Demoth has forsaken me because he loves this present world. He likes being alive. Demas gets a bad rap. I think it was Dante's Inferno where he writes about Demas being in like one of the levels of hell because he forsook Paul. I don't think Demas was an unbeliever. He just, well, cowardly. He liked to live. And so he didn't want to go to jail. And so he did leave Paul and he went on. God's calling me to a safer area. But Luke stuck with him through everything to the very end. Tradition states that he never married, but he served the Lord until he was martyred at the age of 84 back in his home area of Asia. You say, that's great, Will. Thanks for the history lesson. What's the point? All of those things influenced his gospel. Luke wrote this because he wanted to reach people like himself. While most consider Mark to be heavily influenced by Peter, and I believe that as well, Luke is certainly heavily influenced. The gospel of Luke is heavily influenced by Paul. If Mark is Peter's gospel, Luke is the closest thing we have to Paul's gospel. We see here that Luke shares Paul's heart for the Gentiles to come to Jesus. He's a Gentile, and he wants them to know that God loves them too. It comes out in his book when he uses Roman instead of Hebrew dates of reference, when he talks about this happened at this time. He often calls things by their Gentile names instead of their Jewish names. Calvary calls it cranion, which is just the Greek word for that hill, instead of Golgotha, which is the word that the Jews knew it by. He calls Jesus master instead of rabbi. When he does his genealogy of Christ, he goes all the way back to Adam. He doesn't stop at Abraham because we're all from Adam. So he's clearly trying to show that the gospel is for everybody. While Matthew clearly targets a Jewish audience, one of Luke's goals is to show that the good news of Jesus is universal. It's available to anyone who will call on his name. And that's why many of you are here today. Most of us don't come from a Jewish background. We're Gentiles who've gotten saved because the gospel is for us too. But in addition to that, coming from a slave background, Luke also wrote his gospel for the poor and the outcast, those who were like him. We see often stories of the humblest and most sinful shown and that they're not excluded from Christ. It's not just the religious or it's not just the wealthy, which were considered blessed by God back then, but it was for the disadvantaged, for the struggling, for the sinner. It shows that Jesus wants to draw all men to himself. He wanted to reach those who were like himself, but his medical background also comes through because he was meticulous in his preparation for this gospel. See, Luke was not an eyewitness of Jesus's life. He's not a Jew. He didn't grow up in the area of Israel. He didn't witness Jesus teach, but his medical training meant he was used to research and the importance of communicating thoroughly in writing. And when we go through this gospel, we're going to see that. 
One commentator said, Luke is the best writer of Greek among the evangelists. His construction is rhythmical. His vocabulary is rich and well-selected, considerably exceeding that of all the other evangelists. He uses over 700 words which occur nowhere else in the New Testament. He researched, clearly wanted to get everything right. The book of Acts, the book that comes after this book, brings us right to the time of 63 AD and stops there. Most believe, therefore, it was written around that time. Since Paul had more living to do, if Luke didn't include it, that's probably because it hadn't been lived yet. So most believe it occurred there. Well, that's where Paul would have been imprisoned in Caesarea for two years. During that time, Luke would have had plenty of opportunity to go and interview those living eyewitnesses in Israel because he was there with Paul in prison. He would have been able to do this research in Caesarea because of its proximity to both Galilee and Judea. In light of all this stuff, you say, that's great. Okay, so Paul's well-researched. Great, it's a research paper. It's for everybody. Well, I kind of already knew that. So what is studying this book then going to do for us in light of Luke's influences? Well, first off, it's going to show us that our faith is simple. Sometimes we complicate that, don't we? Sometimes we complicate it. We get into all these arguments or we come across things we don't understand and we begin to complicate our faith. But you and I must never forget the simplicity of John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I mean, it's that simple, guys. We were sinners who needed a savior and God loved us enough. He didn't leave us where we were. So he sent Jesus. And if we'll put our trust in him, our sins can be washed clean and we can be saved. I mean, it's that simple. And he's gonna make sure we understand that because there were many people in the Gentile world who wouldn't come with a Jewish background. They wouldn't understand this idea of a Messiah. They wouldn't understand this idea of, of even prophecy from the Old Testament. You know, they would all they would understand is all the pagan gods and the pagan religious things they saw around them. All the things they demanded so they could have good crops or they could have healthy kids or prosperous business or a safe life. And to hear that this God loved them so much that you didn't need to do anything for him, but he was going to do something for you. Very simple. And so it's going to be all throughout this gospel. We're going to see that our faith is a simple faith. While Matthew specifically wrote his gospel to focus on Jesus as the promised Messiah of Israel, Luke's going to focus on Jesus as the perfect man, the one who is worthy of a sacrifice that God would accept so that you don't have to appease God anymore with your works. You don't have to try to do that. But Jesus is the perfect man and therefore the perfect offering accepted by God. But in addition, in showing that he's the perfect man, Luke's going to show us that he was all man. He was 100% man. Another commentator said this. He said, even in recording such words and deeds of our Lord that are also noticed by his two predecessors, Matthew and Mark, Luke generally adds some important hints which give greater prominence to the genuine humanity of his person. How many times have you ever talked to somebody and said, well, you know, Jesus didn't sin. They go, well, yeah, he's God. I mean, anybody ever said that? Maybe you've even said that and go, yeah, well, he's Jesus. Jesus loves everybody. I had, I had a roommate and he just had a nasty streak to him every once in a while. And I go, listen, man, Jesus loved everybody. He goes, I'm not Jesus. And he would use that as an excuse. But I think when we say that sometimes is that we get the idea that it wasn't hard for him, that like temptation wasn't real, that the battle to obey was not a struggle in the sense that like he didn't face genuine opportunity to fail. But none of that's true. He faced everything you and I faced, the Bible says, yet without sin. He faced every one of those trials. The struggle was real for him. These are things I think it's important for us to understand. The commentator goes on to say, all the other gospels describe his agony in Gethsemane, but Luke alone has preserved his touching account of his bloody sweat and the angel 
who came to strengthen him in his weakness. All speak of the repentance of Peter, but Luke alone of the look that the Lord gave him after the cock crowed. See, it's these little intimate details that the research of Luke brings out about Jesus, that he was a real human being. Jesus didn't float above the ground. Hello, I am the son of God. He didn't glow. It's not like you could pick him out in a crowd and go, oh, that guy's the son of God. You know, he's 10, 12 feet tall or he's floating or he glows. He's got a halo around his head. The Bible says there is no comeliness or form about him that we would desire him. There was nothing that stuck out about him that we thought, oh, that's the son of God. He was a man just like you and me. He lived in our skin, just like we have to live in our skin, yet without sin. One commentator said it's the most beautiful book ever written. I hope that you find it that way as well. So it's to show us our faith is simple, that Jesus was like us. It's a simple gospel. But it's also, Luke wrote it, one of his goals is to show us our faith is reliable. See, being a doctor, you didn't just write something out and say, oh, take two of these and call me in the morning. You wanted to write something out with clearly define it so that other people in the medical profession will be able to use that document and be able to genuinely help people. You didn't want to poison people in the process of trying to help them. And in a day when so many wonder why anyone would follow the Bible, to know that our faith is reliable is truly important important to understand. Let me ask you something. Have you ever questioned if God is real? Even though you believe, but have you ever lay in bed at night and wondered? Have you ever asked yourself if God really is loving when you see all the suffering around? Or if God is good? Or if all the things the Bible says about Jesus are true? Well, guess what? This book is for you. (laughs) This book is for you. Luke's meticulous research is designed to establish our faith on a solid ground of facts. He spends more time recounting the minute details because he wants us to live and breathe the reality of what happened. He wants us to feel like we are there. Let's dive in then. So chapter one, verse one. Forasmuch as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most assuredly believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto you in order, most excellent Theophilus, that you might know the certainty of those things wherein you have been instructed." It starts off here and Luke makes reference to the fact that other accounts existed in his day. And he says that there were many. He says, for as much, which means since it is true, since it is true that many have taken in hand to set forth in order. It simply means there are, since it is true that there are many who have attempted to properly organize a declaration, which just means an orderly narrative. He says, of those things which are most surely believed among us. There are many out there who have sat down and tried to compose an orderly narrative of the events and the happenings that are most surely believed among us. The word there, most surely believed, that's not a good translation. It, it literally means things that have been fulfilled, things that have occurred. God predicted that certain things would happen in the Old Testament. And guess what? They happened. And people saw them. And some of those people told their story is what Luke is telling us here. Many of those people told their story. It's interesting because Luke, from the very beginning, he starts off by letting us know these are facts. These are not things that people are just talking about or things they've made up. It's not hearsay. It's not tradition that's been passed down. These are facts. The phrase, those things, normally when you would talk about events that have been passed down from one mouth to another, you would use the word rhema. The word rhema in the Greek refers to something that's passed down. But he uses the word pragma, which is where we get our word pragmatic from. Pragmatic 
means that which is real, that which actually happened. Like if someone says, you're not being pragmatic, what are they saying? You're not being realistic, right? You're not thinking about what will work, what's real. You're living in a dream world. You've got these wonderful ideas, but they're not going to work. So he uses this word pragma because he wants us to know these are things that really happened. God didn't just give nebulous prophecies. God prophesied about real things that would occur, real things that would happen. And Luke says, they really happened. They really happened. And people have been talking about it. They gave eyewitness accounts, he says in verse two, even as they delivered them unto us. They passed on, they instructed us in this traditional teaching. Why? Because from the beginning, they were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. The word from the beginning refers to the beginning of Jesus's life. From the beginning of the gospel, this good news that God sent a savior into the world. He sent us a savior and they saw it. They were eyewitnesses. The word eyewitness, it's the word autoptai. And it means uh, one who has personally seen an event and therefore has accurate knowledge of it. We get our word autopsy from this word. I don't want to get into the grisly details, but what's the job of someone doing an autopsy? To give you the facts of what happened. So these guys were eyewitnesses. They saw what really happened and they were able to give true facts, not just pass on information that they heard from someone else. He says, listen, they've instructed us and passed down these truths because they saw it. But secondly, they were also ministers of the word. They carried it wherever they went. These were people commissioned by God to carry the message of Jesus to others. Again, you might be wondering, okay, but that would kind of argue against Luke to write. If we have other accounts already, and these are not inspired accounts, by the way. These are not lost gospels or lost books of the Bible. But these are things that just people wrote down, just like you might read a good Christian book today. Not inspired, but it pulls from the word and it's a blessing. Same thing here. So why would Luke need to write another account if there were many that were out there? The truth is, if others felt compelled to share their accurate story simply because they were there, Well, that means Luke has a greater reason to share. Verse three, he says, in light of the truth of these other accounts, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto you in order, most excellent Theophilus. See, Luke's account is gonna be different than the accounts like these. His account is researched. He says, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding. The word there, perfect, it means with exactness or with carefulness. And then the phrase having had understanding is all one word. And it means the one investigating. Luke's tooting his own horn a little bit. He goes here, he goes, listen, they gave you their personal stories, but I've got everybody's story. I have researched and interviewed everybody's story that I could find. And what I'm compiling and putting together is not just one perspective, but it is the full story from everybody's perspective. He was exact. He was careful in his research. He wasn't an eyewitness, but he had researched his topic from tons of those who were eyewitnesses. Unlike maybe one of those other accounts that might just talk about Jesus's early life or maybe Jesus's ministry in Judea, or maybe they were there at the end. They were a follower at the end. And so they knew about the cross. Luke is able to give us an account that is well researched about all things about Jesus's birth, his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. And yet Luke's account isn't superior or more important just because it's been researched and not because it's the most well-researched narrative. His account is different because it has something else to it as well. For he says here in verse three, that he received this perfect understanding of all things from the very first. That's probably not a good translation. The word there, very first, literally means from above. In other words, not only did he do thorough research, but God himself gave Luke supernatural wisdom in composing this narrative. 
it's inspired. This is scripture. And therefore, it's better than any of those accounts. While all the gospels are reliable and good for us for different reasons, Luke's two-pronged process that he did research and God inspired him shows that his intent was to provide us an account that proves to us just how wonderfully reliable the gospel is. And doesn't that sound like something we could use today? Yeah. Now, who did Luke arrange such an awesome proof in the pudding narrative for? Well, it tells us here he wrote it for a man named Theophilus. He says, my goal was to write to you in order most excellent Theophilus. See, Luke here tells us, I wrote this with a goal in mind. The phrase there in order could be interpreted in chronological order, but more likely it should be interpreted to place together or group together into topics. Luke does that here. In fact, have you ever read the gospels and wondered why it seems like sometimes each of them have it in a different order? Like you'll read and you go, why is this at the end? I thought that parable is in the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Or I thought it's right next to this parable. Well, see, Luke specifically is writing to group things in topics. So his order is going to be different. His focus is he's trying to teach something to this guy, Theophilus. He's trying to ground him in his faith. He groups things in such a way that that the truths that are going to be there are going to hit you. Boom, 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 back to back to back to back. And then he'll move on to the next topic. So he pulls them out of order. He tells us upright people criticize that the Bible's not inspired because Luke has it in a different order. Duh. He told us he was putting it in a different order. He didn't tell us he was putting it in chronological order. He told us I was grouping it by topic so that you would get the point of what I'm trying to share. His desire isn't to simply give us a list of every event that happened in Jesus' life. In fact, John said in his gospel that no library could contain all the books it would take to write that kind of narrative. He selects certain topics to teach something to Theophilus. Why does he select the topical groupings that he does, though? Well, Theophilus was a person with a specific need. The phrase most excellent here, he's saying that because it's a title given to someone. That's the same title that Paul used when he addressed two different Roman governors. Most believe that this was a high-ranking Roman official who had become a believer. The word Theophilus means friend of God. So we don't know if it's his real name. Maybe it's a pseudonym given to him to keep his cover. I don't know. It could be his name. But either way, this is a guy who is probably not surrounded by a lot of believers in his work environment. This guy, Theophilus, is probably in a very similar situation. He's surrounded by pagan idolatry, surrounded by sacrificial feasts and, and celebrations, immorality, you name it. If there's anybody who needs their faith strengthened, it's this guy. Some believe Theophilus was Luke's original owner, that he got saved through Paul's influence at Troas and he set Luke free so Luke could travel with Paul and help him because he was grateful. I don't know if that's true. Whoever he is, though, he's someone who needs his faith strengthened because the truth is he's surrounded by all these things that he can see around him that everybody around him believes is true. He's never seen Jesus before. He never heard Jesus teach. He's never known any of the writers of the Bible. Everything he's been taught about the gospel, he didn't know any of those guys. I imagine there were times that his faith needed to be strengthened. This gets to our purpose then that Luke clearly tells to Theophilus here. He says, I'm writing to you in this specific way with these topics ordered this way, verse four, that you might know the certainty of those things wherein you have been instructed. Luke's purpose is different than Matthew, Mark, and John. Matthew wrote to show Jesus as the promised king. Mark wrote to the Romans. That's what his gospel was for them. And it was to show Jesus as the suffering servant. We see John has written to show us that he's the son of God, right? Deity. But Luke is written for this purpose, to strengthen the common man's faith. As we go out into a world that's hostile to the Lord and has lots of different ideas, 
to strengthen our faith that we might know the certainty of those things wherein we've been instructed. The word there, know, means to know thoroughly and definitively. And isn't that something you want in your life? I want to know these things thoroughly and definitively. The word there, certainty, it literally means to not be tripped up. He says, I want you to know thoroughly and definitively so that you don't get tripped up in the things you've been instructed on. That you can put one foot in front of the other firmly and with confidence, knowing that what you believe is true, that it's reliable, that it is without a doubt stable and secure. Maybe you're out there thinking, okay, so this is kind of a book for new believers to get grounded in their faith. But that's not what the end of this verse tells us. It tells us something about Theophilus. It says, wherein you have been instructed. The word there is in the perfect tense, which means that this is a guy who's been taught the word of God. The word there instructed means to teach in a systematic or detailed manner. This is a guy who had been instructed in scripture. He knew the word of God. Theophilus was not a new believer. This was a man who sat under biblical teaching for years. But as I said earlier, he never lived in Israel. He never heard Jesus teach. He wasn't at the cross. He never saw the risen Lord. He didn't participate in Pentecost when the spirit of God fell on the church. And you know what that makes Theophilus like? It makes him just like us because we weren't there either. So even though Theophilus believed, sometimes questions nodded him. Is it true? Did it really happen like they told me? I, I can't confirm it. Is Christianity worth me putting every egg in that basket? Maybe I should make a few other gods happy just in case. These were things that he wondered about just like you and I do. Whether you've struggled with those questions or not, Luke's gospel is designed to put firm ground beneath our faith so that we'll put all our trust in him moving forward. We can be confident in God's word to us, to know who we believe, and trust that walking in faith is the best way to live. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.